Hi everyone and welcome to Currency Exchange, a podcast series where we dissect the latest global themes and developments driving currency markets. I'm joined by our co-head of G10 FX Strategy, Brian Dangerfield. If there was one main event driving FX markets this week, it was definitely expectations for the Bank of Japan policy meeting. Following an increase in the trading range for the 10-year yield from the Bank of Japan back in December, expectations were extremely high that the central bank was about to abort its policy of yield curve control. Um, expectations were definitely high going in, especially in the vol space, but that wasn't exactly what we got from the Bank of Japan this week. Brian, you know, what actually did the Bank of Japan come out with? What, was, what policy changes were actually announced? So this was potentially a very significant change in policy from the Bank of Japan. But what was announced was effectively no change in this policy. So just to take a step back for a moment, you think about the Bank of Japan policy in the context of global central banks. The Bank of Japan currently is almost like looking into a time capsule of what monetary policy looked like before the pandemic when inflation was too low uh, and central banks were trying to do whatever they could to push inflation higher. We know the Federal Reserve, European Central Bank, and pretty much every central bank has been tightening monetary policy, in some cases very aggressively, to try and bring inflation down. The Bank of Japan instead has a policy of yield curve control where they're trying to keep interest rates extremely low across the sovereign bond curve in order to effectively encourage higher growth and encourage higher inflation. Now, Japan's in a very different position than most other economies in the world simply because they've been fighting deflationary pressures for such a long time. So in the US and a lot of other central banks, inflation has moved up way too fast. Expectations, people are, are, central bankers are concerned that inflation expectations may become unanchored to the top side. The Bank of Japan is instead trying to encourage inflation expectations to move up because they've been fighting with negative inflation and negative inflation expectations for so long. So the specifics of the decision, as you mentioned, Emer, In December, the Bank of Japan surprised the market by making a small change to its yield curve control policy. So the Bank of Japan sets a target for the 10-year Japanese government bond yield at 0%. And prior to December, they had a trading range of 25 basis points in either direction uh, that was sort of tolerable. And the Bank of Japan would come in and aggressively buy government bonds if their target was being exceeded on the top side in yield terms. In December, due to market functionality issues, the Bank of Japan surprised the market and decided to widen that range. They kept the target at 0%, but widened the range to 50 basis points. The Bank of Japan stressed that this was a market conditions-related change, uh, not necessarily a change in monetary policy, but the market clearly took it a different way, saw the change as something that was, uh, in essence, a hawkish development. You look around the world, a lot of central banks have changed, have moved away from these ultra-extreme dovish policies because of higher inflation. Uh, Japan is also experiencing higher inflation, particularly headline inflation. So the market saw this change as perhaps a disguised tightening rather than a change in, uh, rather than a change for financial, uh, financial functionality reasons alone. So that moves us forward to the meeting we had uh, in mid-January, where market expectations had become very high that the move in December was not going to be a one-off. Instead, it was going to be the start of a more sustained change in this yield curve control strategy. 
but the Bank of Japan really halted the market expectations firmly. Not only did they make no changes to their yield curve control policy, but the Bank, uh, Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda effectively pushed back hard against market expectations for a change, effectively saying, we think yield curve control is sustainable. Uh, the economic conditions um, that justify yield curve control are still in place. And the Bank of Japan also re released new inflation expectations as part of its uh, updated forecasts at the January meeting. And in those inflations, their measures of core inflation are still not above 2% over the next two years. So you think about the difference between inflation in the US, for example, where we're running very far above uh, 2%. In Japan, the Bank of Japan still sees core inflation below 2% for the next couple of years. So they push back very hard against market expectations in the dovish way. I guess my question is, how do markets take that pushback? Because it was interesting, you know, we did see a sharp sell-off in the yen immediately following that policy announcement, but it was almost entirely reversed. And even now the yen is trading, you know, just quarter of a percentage point weaker against the dollar compared to Wednesday's opening market prices. So how, I guess, have markets really reacted to that pushback from the Bank of Japan? Sure. I, it's hard to say how much was actually priced in for this meeting because you know media stories leading up to the decision seem to reinforce the market maybe fear or concern that the Bank of Japan was going to make a change. Leading up to the event, the 10-year yield in Japan was actually trading above the BOJ's tolerance range, so the top side of the range at 50 basis points. It was actually trading above there. So we know that's a reflection of the market expecting some change or at least pricing in the risk of some change, effectively challenging the Bank of Japan's uh, target of you know the, the top end of their tolerance range around the 0% target, which lands at 50 basis points as of December. You also saw the yen, as mentioned, had strengthened pretty substantially in the sessions leading up to the decision. So in both cases, it was clear there was expectation for a change of some kind, but it's hard to know just how much was expected. Was a 25 basis point increase in the range more likely, or was scrapping yield control altogether uh, the more expected outcome. So currency moves that we've seen um, maybe reflect that uncertainty in the pricing, that it was difficult to get a read on how much was actually in the price. It's very clear what they did was extremely dovish. But as you mentioned, the reaction in the market on the FX side, the yen has actually clawed back a lot of its immediate post Bank of Japan losses. That probably reflects the fact that the consensus was a little bit uncertain, that the expectation was that there's maybe a small chance of a very significant change in Bank of Japan policy. But the reality was they didn't actually execute on that small chance. Instead, they kept a uh, policy unchanged. There's also the reality that, you know, dollar yen is uh, the yen is only one half of this. Uh, it's only one side of the pair. You also have the dollar side. And, you know, as we've been mentioning in, uh, in these podcasts and others, uh, the dollar outlook has clearly weakened. Um, since last year, amid a combination of factors, you have some softer data coming out of the U.S. We had retail sales most recently, surprise on the downside. Looks like the Fed's likely to slow uh, its pace of tightening to deliver a rate hike of just 25 basis points at its February meeting. So there's the dollar half of this coin as well. Um, and there's downside pressure on the dollar-yen pair coming from the dollar side as well. So that's probably a significant reason why dollar-yen uh, its rally was very short-lived. You have the dollar side, you have the yen side as well. And I'll make one last point on this. These expectations aren't going to go away that 
inflation has moved up in Japan. Global growth expectations have improved due to some changes in conditions in Europe and the reopening in China. And you also are going to have a new Bank of Japan governor uh, joining very soon. You're going to have a change in leadership. And a change in leadership always brings the possibility of new eyes coming onto an old policy. And so this question of yield curve control changing is going to be with us for a while. And the end probably reflects that. Definitely touch on my next question, which is, you know, do you think, especially bond markets, will really continue to test the Bank of Japan's resolve? Do you think they'll keep trying to push that 10-year yield above the band? And I guess, what are the key kind of factors to watch out for? So I think the strength and conviction with which Kuroda and the Bank of Japan pushed back very firmly against the uh, uh, against the market in terms of the 50 basis point floor on, uh, on JGB prices, the ceiling on yields, I should say. The strength at which they pushed back on that was so strong, it seems unlikely that the Bank of Japan is gearing up to make a change as soon as March now. Essentially, the move in December, the market was maybe a bit confused or uncertain about the Bank of Japan's reaction function. The move in December, perhaps that was the start of steady changes in this policy. So markets, I think, were uh, appropriately priced for that risk. What Kuroda essentially came out and said instead was that was a one-time change. Do not expect this to happen again. We need economic conditions uh, to adjust to make it more you know, to, to actually justify a change in policy. So from that perspective, it seems less likely we're going to see yields test the ceiling or it certainly trade above the ceiling with the same veracity they did leading up to this meeting because the pushback was so strong. You can envision a scenario where the Bank of Japan was a little bit had a little bit less conviction. Maybe they were saying we could consider additional changes where the market might be more willing to entertain this. But it seems now that the more likely scenario is that at least through Kuroda's final meeting as governor in March, that the Bank of Japan is probably not going to be changing this policy again. So from that perspective, I think just the conviction that the Bank of Japan used in its pushback was so firm and so clear that it seems less likely to me that the market will test. You also have international conditions where uh, in a lot of cases, yields have fallen because growth expectations in the US, for example, have come down. Global yields obviously have some correlation together. So if you were seeing significant upside in global yields at the 10-year point, that might encourage more upside pressure on JGBs, you might not be in that kind of environment anymore as well. So I think it's less likely now due to those combination of factors that you'll see this ceiling being tested. But you know, as you look down the road, there's going to be a new Bank of Japan governor. Um, and I don't think this question of change in policy is gonna be, uh, I, don't, I don't think this is gonna go away anytime soon. So that risk is, I, I feel like is certainly there. And where does the yen go from here? I mean, if we think there's still a question there, do we think markets, you know, keep driving the yen stronger? And obviously the dollar view plays into that. What's kind of your outlook on dollar yen going forward? Absolutely. I think the dollar, out, uh, dollar yen outlook should still be lower. We have moved a lot in a long, uh, we've moved a long way in dollar yen in a relatively short time. Uh, but I think those moves are justified by a couple of different factors. You have had, um, this change in BOJ policy in December, while the BOJ pushed back against it pretty aggressively, that still opened up this possibility of changes. As I mentioned, the March meeting looks less likely, but I think this concern, this is a hawkish concern that lends strength to the, to the yen on you know, uh, all things equal, 
this concern, this expectation is going to remain hanging over the market. And I think that's going to be relative to the end of last year. This is going to be a positive driver um, for the yen from here. And as I mentioned, there's another half of this currency pair as well, which is the dollar half. And we think that has been weakening. I think the big question for dollar yen and the dollar more broadly is, has the dollar has the dollar move, which has come very quickly as well, has it moved too far too fast? I think you could make that argument considering the market is now pricing interest rate cuts again in the U.S. this year. That feels maybe a bit over its skis. You look at front end interest rates in the U.S., uh, the market seems um, willing to price against the Fed a lower terminal rate than the Fed is talking about and earlier interest rate cuts. Would not be surprised to see the Fed try and push back against that at its early February meeting, even as it delivers a slower interest rate hike. So that's probably the question that we'll be facing is, I think that the fundamental outlook still merits lower dollar yen over the medium term. But the question really will be about more about, in the near term, I think is gonna be more about positioning and whether the move has come a bit too far too fast. Certainly the price action after the BOJ meeting where dollar yen surged higher in the immediate aftermath, that could have been an opportunity where perhaps extended yen longs uh, came under some pressure, uh, but instead the opposite happened. It seemed like there was uh, quite a bit of enthusiasm to sell into that move. That's maybe encouraging to say that positioning may not be overstretched in dollar shorts. And so I feel like the, the, uh, the direction is probably still lower for dollar yen uh, from our fundamental view. Yeah, I think it goes back to your kind of very key point where we keep seeing, you know, financial markets, especially in the rate space, really kind of challenging the resolve of central banks to enact these policies. I think that's right. And, you know, you think about central banks that have employed this type of policy. Think about what yield curve control is. It's effectively um, the Bank of Japan sets a price for the asset and it, or it has a yield target for the asset and is effectively willing to defend that at any cost. But when you have measures like this, it's always difficult to exit a policy like this. You think about in the currency space, you're talking about either floors or pegs. Um, you know, When you have this in place, it's very difficult to get rid of these kinds of policies in a managed way. There's a couple of big examples um, of these policies sort of being uh, removed uh, and causing significant amounts of volatility. You think back to uh, the Euro-Swiss floor um, when the Swiss National Bank sort of pulled the rug out from under the market, essentially. And even in the yield space, Australia employed a version of yield curve control um, in the aftermath of the pandemic. And when it was time to get rid of yield curve control, they effectively just dropped it um, at a moment's notice. And you know that caused some significant volatility in Australian bond markets. But I did want to ask you, Emer. I know this. your focus is on um, you know, the Semia world. There is actually a really good example of exiting this type of strategy in a managed way. And that actually comes from the Czech Republic with the, uh, with the floor in the, uh, in the Czech currency. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, if we could go back in time, talk a little bit about how that exit was managed and some of the success they had there. Um, and you, know, you think about Bank of Japan and changing yield curve control policy. Is there a way to end this without it ending ending messy? Yeah, I think it's a great example where, you know, we always automatically see financial markets really try to test central banks' resolves, especially when they 
defend a specific level, whether it's in the yield space or in FX. Um, and I guess Chuck really stands out for doing very successful FX intervention. So I think back in 2013, they intervened actually to stop currency appreciation, which was threatening a deflationary uh, spiral. So they you know, intervened in size. They really capped the strength of the Swiss franc. I actually managed to hold on to the policy until uh, 2017 when there was no longer so much deflationary risk. They kind of very clearly came out with a policy announcement to the market. And they also specifically said that, you know, even though they were exiting their FX intervention policy, they would come back into the market if there was any kind of speculative volatile moves. And that exit was very well managed. You didn't have a bar shock rippling through financial markets. You, you did see the currency kind of um, appreciate off the back of it, but it was you know very contained. It was the beginning of a trend. By the end of the year, uh, the Czech traded about 6% stronger against the euro. And in actual fact, it actually played into the Czech Republic's favor last year were effectively because of their FX intervention policy, they accumulated so much FX reserves that actually allowed them to intervene again, this time to actually strengthen the Swiss franc and ward off inflationary pressure. And they have managed that really well, where they're actually intervening at a reduced pace each month, but they're managing to sustain an actually stronger level of the Czech Corona against the euro. And that is eliminating inflationary pressure. I would say particularly last year, we saw a lot of central banks having to do FX uh, intervention, really to try to support their currency and to ward off that inflationary impulse. And probably the key thing to do is not to kind of come out, be very aggressive to markets and say that you're going to protect a certain level. I think that really kind of incites speculative forces, but more to kind of uh, strategically lean against, look for opportunities, where kind of if you kind of bombastically come out and say you're going to defend a certain level, whether it be in the yield space or in FX, I think you do inside a little bit of um, market forces to test your resolve. You know, when it comes to central bank credibility, that's really important in these types of scenarios where um, does the market think the Bank of Japan has the conviction to hold on to this policy, for example? Um, uh, it, clearly, the Bank of Japan came out forcefully and said, we do have that conviction. Um, but a lot of central banks are trying to tell markets that they're wrong it, it, currently. The Bank of Japan is trying to tell the market that it's wrong to be pricing in more ha hawkish policy. The Fed's trying to tell the market that they're maybe underpricing the risk that they keep hiking uh, and leave rates uh, on hold at high levels for a long time. And even the ECB is coming out and saying, you know, I think Lagarde, uh, President Lagarde said um, as recently as this week, she basically told the market, you guys should be revising your positions uh, because your expectations are maybe a bit too dovish. So some pretty forceful pushback from a lot of different uh, central banks recently in different directions, I should say. Central bank credibility is certainly something that's on the line when central bankers are trying to tell the market that it's wrong uh, and the market is trying to lean in another direction. So certainly a fascinating environment that we're in at the moment. Yeah, and I do think we're going to see this battle between you know, financial market expectations and central banks' conviction continue. Well, that is all we've got time for for this week's episode of Currency Exchange. Thank you for joining us and thank you to my guest, Brian Dangerfield. If you like the podcast, please do click like so that others can find us and do subscribe. Um, but that is all for today. 